Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. And as you're turning there, if, if you have your Bible, if not, I will be putting the, the text up on screen. So imagine this. Imagine a factory gets a new machine. doesn't matter what it is. It's a brand new machine, though. It's going to make everything better. It's going to make that factory produce more, produce quicker, produce cheaper. Everything's going to be so much better. And so they're giving a tour of this new machine. And there's a group, and they're walking around it, and someone's presenting and talking about all the details. And there's a young man there, and, and he, it's the first time he's ever seen it. He's kind of new to the job, wants to make a good impression. So he thinks, he, I'm going to give some ideas. So he pipes in, he says, you know, that, that motor there, I think if we ran that twice as fast, we could get twice as much out of this machine. And a lady in the back kind of, chimes in and says, well, I think that would break the motor. I, I really don't think that would work. And he says, well, that's your opinion. They go on, they come to another place, and they're talking about the electronics. He says, you know, I think if we increase the voltage there, we could get more out of this. And the lady in the back says, well, that would probably fry all the electronics in the machine. I, I don't think that would be a good idea. He says, well, that's your opinion. I think we should take some risks, and this would be a good idea. They go on, and again, they're pointing out something, and he has some idea on how to make it better. And again, she says, I don't think that would be a good idea. And finally, he's fed up. And he turns to her and says, who do you think you are? My ideas are just as valid as yours. Who are you to say that my ideas are not a good idea? And the woman says, I'm the inventor of the machine. She says, I've been working on it for the past 15 years to design it, build it, test it, troubleshoot, and optimize it. I know every square inch, every piece, every component inside and out. Now, I imagine this man has two options at this point. One is to admit that he doesn't know as much as she does and to ask her, could you explain this to me? Tell me how this works. Help me to understand this part so that I can use the machine the best that I possibly can. That's one option. Show some humility. There's another option, and that is to say, I don't care who you are. I think we should do this. My idea is just as valid as yours. This woman in this situation has a greater authority. She has a greater understanding. She has greater expertise in the situation. This is the first time he's even seen this machine. She built it and has worked on it for 15 years. And here's where I'm hoping to get to with the sermon today. Our opinions and our ideas must always give way to a greater authority. We must submit to a greater authority. And in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 21, we're going to see this group of people, these Pharisees, really strong ideas, knowledgeable ideas, well-studied, well-thought-out ideas. And then we're going to see Jesus, God incarnate. And we're going to see this group try to argue with Jesus that they know better. 
And we're going to see the greater authority of Jesus Christ. And as we jump into this passage, and we look at the first 14 verses, I want to give a little bit of background because right away you're going to see this group called the Pharisees. And maybe some of you have heard of them, maybe some of you haven't. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were a group of religious leaders. They were the main teachers in the synagogues. They were the people that went around teaching uh, the people in Jerusalem and around Israel. They were trying to help people to follow God's law. They arose as a group during what's known as the intertestamental time, the 400 years between the New or the Old and the New Testament. And they came about because they really wanted the Messiah to come. And they believed that if Israel would return to the law and keep the law perfectly and righteously, then the Messiah would come. What a profound irony that when the Messiah comes, they are one of the groups that cannot accept him. Even though that's what they were supposedly all about. Now, unfortunately, over time, they began to put their own laws and own rules on top of the law. And they did so with the idea that we'll help you to keep the law by better explaining it and by putting safeguards in place to make sure you don't break the rules. John MacArthur has a quote that I thought was really helpful. He said, Tailors did not need to carry a needle with them on the Sabbath for fear they might be tempted to mend a garment and thereby perform work. Nothing could be bought or sold, and clothing could not be dyed or washed. A letter could not be dispatched, even if by the hand of a Gentile. No fire could be lit or extinguished, including fire for a lamp, although a fire already lit could be used within certain limits. For that reason, some Orthodox Jews today use automatic timers to turn on lights in their homes well before the Sabbath begins. Otherwise, they might forget to turn them on and have to spend the night in the dark. Baths could not be taken for fear some of the water might spill on the floor and wash it. Chairs could not be moved because dragging them might make a furrow in the ground. And a woman was not to look in a mirror lest she see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. Those are not made up. And and I have to tell you, as I was researching for this, you know, I be looking up certain passages or Googling certain things, and every once in a while an Orthodox Jewish site would pop up. I read a whole page on caring for pets on the Sabbath and what you could do and could not do. There was a whole section on how you could walk your pet and how long the leash had to be and how far from the ground the leash had to dangle. It was not allowed to touch the ground. I don't know why, maybe because it would plow a furrow. You could feed and care for the pet, but not pet them. I mean, this stuff still goes on today. Now, again, the heart, it is a heart of obedience. There's a desire there to obey. But it goes too far to say, here's what God says, and we're going to add to it all of these things that have to be obeyed. And so here's the situation, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. This would be Saturday, the sixth day of the week. I'm sorry, the seventh day of the week. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. They are accusing Jesus and his disciples of breaking the law of God. That is a very serious accusation against the Son of God. 
Because throughout Scripture, it talks about Jesus upholding and fulfilling the law. Never once does Jesus break the law. Because he is perfectly righteous. But the Pharisees are making this accusation. Now, the Sabbath law was put in a place that for six days they would work. And on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, on Saturday, they would cease from their work for worship and renewal and trusting the Lord. And the idea was that by not working on that day, they were declaring, we believe even more important than our work is trusting in God, our Father. So we will cease our activities in order to trust him and just put that cycle in place. In fact, they had Sabbath years as well. For six years, they would plant and harvest. On the seventh year, they were supposed to leave the fields fallow and trust that God would provide for them. As far as I know, there is no recording in history that they ever actually upheld that law. But it was put in a place there. Every 50 years, they were supposed to have a special Sabbath year. So these things were put in place to teach them and to put a regular practice in place of trusting in the Lord and not in themselves. But the Pharisees came along and added to the law. And in their zeal to help people keep the Lord's commandments, the Pharisees end up setting themselves up as a higher authority than God. Now it's not keeping the Lord's law, it's keeping the Pharisees' law. And Jesus responds here with two examples from Scripture. Look at verses 3 through 4. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for priests. David, in one of his many times of having to flee, he enters into the tabernacle. And he and his men are hungry. And the priest offers him this bread, the bread that was put out daily as part of the ritual worship of God. It was commanded in the law to put this out. And only the priest, after it was out for the day, only the priest and their family could eat this bread. But the priest offers it to David. So that's one important fact, because the priest is in charge of the tabernacle. The other important fact is that nowhere in Scripture are we told that what David did was wrong. God never judges him for this. It's... Like it's no big deal. And so Jesus is bringing this up and say, wait a minute, you're holding your nitpicky rule against me, but let's look at what the word of God says. And let me just say, as, as Christians, when we disagree on things, that's how you handle it. You go to the word of God. Let's say what it says, and let's not say more than it says. Let's stick to what it says. It's an important way to handle disagreements in the church. His next thing is in verse 5. He says, Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? Now, the law doesn't actually say the priests desecrate the Sabbath. What it says is, guess what? As a priest on the Sabbath, they're working. It's kind of funny here because Jesus and his disciples are on their way to the synagogue. That's that's the next passage we're going to look at here. They're on their way to the synagogue. Guess who's going to be teaching in the synagogue? Probably the Pharisees. Guess who's working on the Sabbath? The Pharisees. And this was fine with God. In fact, it was required. That was part of how they kept the Sabbath was to spend time in his word, teaching it and preaching it and applying it to their life, much like we do on Sunday mornings. So he's saying, look, 
your own scripture that God gave you does not uphold the accusation you're making against me. And then he says this in verse 6. Something, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. Oh boy. Jesus has just crossed a line. Because what he's saying is that the worship of God in the tabernacle or in the temple is so important that these things go on. And the Pharisees would have said, well, of course. But then when Jesus said this, their jaws would have hit the floor. What do you mean something more important than the very dwelling place of God among his people? The place where people come to have their sins cleansed, to offer sacrifice and maintain their covenant relationship with God. What do you mean something more important than that has come? And of course, Jesus is pointing to himself. He is the presence of God in their midst. He is the one who is perfectly righteous and holy. He is the one who forgives sins. He is the true interpreter and teacher of the law. Jesus is the higher authority. And all of their rules, all their suggestions, all their interpretations must bow to the authority of the Son of God. And then Jesus quotes from Hosea chapter 6. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The meaning of the quote is pretty straightforward. God wants us to love him with our hearts, to serve him with our hearts, to have a relationship with him, not just religious actions that we go through. And we can get that much. But if we go to the context of the quote, I think we get so much more. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, the chapter starts with the phrase, Come, let us return to the Lord. The whole book of Hosea is based on the fact that the Israelites have walked away from their covenant relationship with their God. They are cheating on God. And God calls Hosea as a prophet to go out and marry a woman of ill repute, a woman who will cheat on him knowingly. And he tells Hosea, this is going to be a picture of my relationship with my people who have been unfaithful. But in Hosea, he's calling them to return. And so this quote, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, is in that covenant call to return. And the rest of Hosea, verse 6, of chapter 6, is for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And can I just encourage you, whenever you find a quote from the Old Testament in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, look it up and read the passage around it. Jesus is speaking to scholars of the Old Testament. All he has to do is quote a phrase, and the whole chapter and the whole context is popping into their heads. They memorized it. They knew it backwards and forwards. They studied this stuff day in and day out. And this was how they taught. They didn't have to quote the whole thing. They just had to quote a little bit. And the whole thing would come flooding into their minds. And the point of Hosea 6 that I believe Jesus is bringing into this context is that the Israelites were being judged for doing what they wanted, for following their own authority and being unfaithful to the authority of God. And what Jesus is saying is to these Pharisees, you're doing the same 
thing. And I'm calling you back. And you're rejecting my authority. And then he makes it abundantly clear. Verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There is no way the Pharisees could accept that. To acknowledge what he says here is to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is God. They cannot accept that statement. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He goes on, says verses 9 and 10, going on from there, uh, from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus goes into the synagogue and he sees an injured man or a disabled man, a man who needs healing. The Pharisees see an opportunity. They don't care about this guy. They don't care about his healing. They want to catch Jesus. They want to catch him in an argument first, and they want to catch him in breaking the law. They want to discredit Jesus. And so they ask him this question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And the answer that they know full well is no. It is not unlawful. It is perfectly lawful to help someone on the Sabbath if you stick to what God wrote. If you stick to what the Pharisees wrote, it's much more complicated. The Old Testament allowed for healing people and helping people, especially if a life was at stake, on the Sabbath. And Jesus, again, argues with them, talks with them, using some of their own ideas. He says to them in verse 11, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, this is not coming from the Old Testament law. This is evidently something Jesus knew about the Pharisees. They allowed, if your property was in danger, you were allowed to do something about it. Sheep were kind of a big deal. You didn't want to lose one. And so they allowed that. Why would they value a sheep more than a person? The other thing that they get wrong here is thinking that it is any work at all for Jesus to heal this man. It takes no work for the Son of God to heal this man's hand. No work at all. So he points out that they are inconsistent with their own rules. And he points out that in their judgment of him, they're also judging this man. They were judging that people were less than property. And then they were applying their laws to uphold that. And Jesus says it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. See, the problem is that the Pharisees were missing is that, yes, the Old Testament law had a lot of things to say about what you should do and shouldn't do in many different situations, but a whole section of the law was very clear on loving others. And they were completely ignoring those sections. Verse 13, we're told, Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. And here again, like the man in my illustration, the Pharisees have a choice. 
how will they respond to the obviously greater authority of Jesus Christ? But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. There's been a thread running throughout Matthew of this tension that is building. In chapter 12, it comes to a head. Here, and we'll see in a week or two, actually, I think it'll be next week, where they call Jesus, Beelzebub, Satan. The religious leaders reject him and say there's no way he's the Messiah. And the path is set from here to the cross where Jesus will be killed. Why? Because they could not accept. The Pharisees' whole understanding of their role in society was to be right. They had to be right. And they had to be in control. And everybody else had to follow their rules or they were in sin. The problem is that Jesus comes along. And just by being Jesus, he shows them that they are wrong. Nobody likes to be shown that they're wrong, told that they're wrong. But it's important to understand we are not the greatest authority and we are not the ones who are in control. Now, we may not struggle with religious legalism or strict Sabbath rules, but I think we all struggle with wanting to be right and wanting to be in control. And we need to hit the pause button and say, wait a minute, who is Jesus? And that's where the next passage goes. We need to accept that Jesus is the ultimate judge. In verses 15 to 21, Matthew quotes again from the Old Testament from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. And he starts by explaining how Jesus responds to this. He's just had this public confrontation with the Pharisees, and they now are out to kill him. And look at how the Son of God responds. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. He withdrew from that place. He healed all who were ill. I read this, instead of Jesus confronting the Pharisees, getting this long, drawn-out argument, trying to prove who's right, trying to make them look bad, Jesus said, okay. And he kept going on the mission for which he came. He kept going. He doesn't make a scene. He doesn't argue or get upset. He's not interested in public opinion or beating up the Pharisees. He knows there is a mission to accomplish, to spread the gospel in this world, and he keeps going. And then Matthew gives us this quote from Isaiah 42. This is what was, or this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. What a powerful statement about the Son of God. We learn that he is gentle. He's not out to belittle or insult the Pharisees. Jesus is not trying to make himself look good or look better than them or make them look worse. He will proclaim truth. He will 
talk about truth, discuss truth, even argue truth at some point. But he's not out to just win a fight. He is on a mission. Christians, we can proclaim truth and be gentle. We can proclaim truth and be loving. We can proclaim truth and not beat other people up. Jesus did it. So can we. But there's another thread in this passage that I thought was interesting. And it's about justice. Justice is kind of a big word in our world today. And I thought, you know, we'll we'll have to deal with justice and, and social justice. And I thought, again, let's go to the context. And I spent time on Thursday morning and this sermon took a turn. Because again, we need to let the word of God define what the word of God is saying. And the context of Isaiah chapter 42 is so helpful. If you know a little of the history of Israel, at some point, uh, Israel is split into two kingdoms. They have a civil war, a north kingdom, or a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is taken over and taken into exile by the Assyrians. It's a horrible situation. And the southern kingdom now is in a much weaker state. The, the northern kingdom, as much as they didn't get along, was a bit of a buffer between them and other nations. And now, another nation is at their doorstep. The Assyrians are right there. They're a superior power and they're about to take over the Israelites. And then God tells King Hezekiah in chapter 37, he's going to rescue them from Assyria. And he takes care of the Assyrians and they leave and everything's great. And then in chapter 39, this upstart nation, Babylonia, shows up. And Hezekiah welcomes them in. Let me show you all of my treasures and all of my goods. Let's have a great relationship. You and I are going to get along wonderfully. And then God tells him, I'm giving your kingdom to the Babylonians. They will come in and conquer you and kick you out of your land and you will go into exile. Because instead of trusting the Lord, Hezekiah tried to trust in what he could do. And it's interesting, in the following chapter, verse, or chapter 40, we get a whole bunch of messianic prophecies. As they're about to go into this judgment, God tells them, one is coming who will rescue you. There's also, in that chapter, a whole lot of judgments against idolatry. And the foolishness of setting something up that you can make, And then putting your trust in that thing that you can make and worshiping that thing that you have made and saying, this is my authority. This is the one who will deliver me. And then in chapters 40 and 42 or 41 and 42 of Isaiah, God calls the people to court. And he says, I'm putting you on trial for your your idolatry. I'm going to bring justice. That's the context of the quote in Matthew chapter 12. That's the justice he's talking about. And when you think of what's going on with the Pharisees, it makes total sense. The Pharisees were putting hope in their own ideas and saying, this will save us. And Jesus comes along and says, only God can save. And he's calling them out for the idolatry of their own ideas. Matthew quotes this passage because it helps us to understand the gentleness of our Savior, but also the justice of our Savior. He is judging the Pharisees for their idolatry. 
An idol is not just a statue that you bow down to or a picture that you bow down to. It is a self-made, self-proclaimed, man-made idea, concept that we trust in. And we believe if this thing happens, then we will be saved. That too is idolatry. And Jesus is the true judge of all righteousness, of all law, of all reality. He is the maker of the world. He understands how it works. And if the Pharisees reject him, they're missing the whole point of the law. And if we reject him, we don't understand this world or our lives at all. Friends, we've got to accept that Jesus is a greater authority. A greater authority than our culture a greater authority than man-made laws or systems. He's a greater authority than our opinions, than our personal convictions or our traditions. Jesus is a greater authority. We must understand who he is and submit to his authority. We also need to come to grips, and I think especially today, that Jesus is a gentle Savior. He shows us how to engage in difficult situations. Holding up truth, but not belittling or putting down the other person. You don't win an argument simply by making the other person look bad. You hold up truth. And while I don't think today many of us struggle with Sabbath regulations, if I may, I think we have a struggle with idolatry still. I've been in ministry for over 20 years now. And every four years, we get a new president. And every four years, there's a group of Christians who will say, this is the greatest thing ever. This person's going to save us. This is going to take us out of the darkness, and everything's going to be great. And then there's another group of Christians. This is the most wicked, awful person I've ever seen, and everything's going to be horrible, and the kingdom of God is going to fall apart, and the church is going to fade away. Every four years. Every four years, I see brothers and sisters in Christ say things about people in public office that I know, I hope, I trust they would never say to anybody's face. Vicious, mean, horrible things. Wanting somebody dead, hurt. I cannot believe what people say in the name of Jesus Christ about our enemies, friends. Does the Bible have anything to say about treating our enemies? Yes. It says to love them. Agree with them? No. Love them? Absolutely. I believe, especially in the American church today, we have political idolatry. We have put our hope in man-made rules and man-made systems And we believe they are either the savior of the world or the destruction of the world. And it doesn't matter which side of that equation you are on. They are both idolatry because you're giving way too much credit to humanity. God holds this world in the palm of his hand. He will raise people up and bless them and use them. And that doesn't mean that that's a good person. Because the leader of Babylon, the Old Testament makes very clear God blessed him, chose him, raised him up for that person, and then later condemned him because he was a horrible person. God raises people up and he takes them down. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Jesus is the judge. 
Jesus is the authority. Not us. Not a political party. Not our ideas. Not our convictions. Not our backgrounds. We must keep to the greater authority of Jesus Christ and the greater mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't sit down and say, okay, Pharisees, I'm going to let you have it. He said, I'm going to keep going and preach the gospel. Other people need to hear. There is a greater authority in this world than politics. A greater authority than presidents. A greater authority than popular opinion. A greater authority than the media. Even a greater authority than our personal feelings and our ideas. And we are each and every day like that young man in the factory. We are confronted with the authority of Jesus Christ. And we need to look deep in our hearts and say, how am I going to respond? Am I going to say I know better? I've got this all figured out. If we could just move these things around and get this person in the White House and this person out and change these laws, everything would be fine. Or are we going to say God is still on his throne? And the gospel is the only hope for this world. Let's keep going on mission. And the beauty is when we accept the authority of Jesus Christ, we get to experience his love, his grace, and his mercy, and the amazing salvation through his cross. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would convict us of the idols in our own lives. And God, I thank you that in these passages in Matthew, we have these wonderful examples of how Jesus deals with people who are wrong. And so as we recognize that we are in many ways wrong, we can see that you will stand up for truth and proclaim it, but that you also love us and shepherd us and care for us. And Father, I pray as Christians, as we engage with this world and stand up for your truth, may we too do so in gentleness and humility. May we be willing to engage with ideas and worldviews, but not belittle or insult people who are made in your image and able to be saved through the cross of Jesus Christ. May we, as we submit to your authority, also understand that the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ is more important than any contemporary argument. And that we can engage And we can discuss those things. And we can apply the gospel. But we can never make those things more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ or give them more authority than you, our God, our Father. And may each one of us submit to your authority in our own lives. Rather than bring our ideas and asking you to bless them, may we come to you and learn who you are in humility. Submit to you to walk in relationship with you and to share your love through the gospel with all we meet. In your name we pray. Amen.